It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. The themes and content being discussed in this episode may not be appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Victimology. I'm your host, Melissa Lee. I had only recently heard the name Israel Keys, and when I had first learned of his actions, I was very surprised. More people had not heard of him. So I started kind of doing some research and I found the podcast True Crime Bullshit, which is hosted by Josh Hallmark. It is amazing and so detailed. Josh has just done an amazing job with this podcast. So without further ado, here is my interview with the host of True Crime Bullshit, Josh Hallmark. All right. So with me, I have Josh Hallmark. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your podcast? So I actually have four, um, but uh, the one we're here to talk about tonight is True Crime Bullshit. 
which is a serialized look at serial killer Israel Keys. Um, it's currently in the second season. The first season was really just setting up the story of uh, who this guy was, how he came to be who he was, um, exploring a few. He had a very um, meticulous uh, mythology to stalking and killing people. So it was really setting up his MO and, you know, um, his known victims and kind of looking at his travels because he was a serial killer who would travel great distances to kill people um, and then move their bodies across state lines because he knew an extraordinary amount about jurisdiction, uh, especially at that time. Um, and now the second season is really just a deep dive investigation into um, who his victims are because we know he had a minimum of 11 victims. We only have been able to identify four of them. Uh, so my goal with this podcast is hopefully to determine who some of those other victims are um, at best, but at least kind of narrow down to who they could be. So you have four shows, including True Crime Bullshit. What drew you to Israel Keys? Um, so I've been a true crime fan since I was a little kid. Uh, I grew up in the 80s, you know, during Unsolved Mysteries and um, America's Most Wanted and Rescue 911 when all those shows really started hitting mainstream television. Uh, and I grew up in the Bay Area on the heels of like the Zodiac and Kemper and um, a few other notorious serial killers. So it's always kind of been present around me. Um, so I've been fascinated by it. And I never thought I would do a true crime podcast. I was really into just talking about uh, community and humanity. But Israel Keys was someone when he got arrested. It was really fascinating to me because it was just an interesting spin on a true crime presentation. So uh, usually it's like victim crime and then we are trying to find who the killer is. And this was kind of that in reverse. Uh, we knew who the killer was. We didn't know whose victims were or where they were. Um, and so I thought that was fascinating. And he also had this unprecedented deal with the FBI where they wouldn't release his name to the media as long as he continued to work with him, work with them. So for his almost year in captivity, uh, they never released any information about him, which I thought was really interesting too. this kind of um, leveraging of power and this tug of war that he was having with the FBI about what they could release and what they couldn't and what he was willing to give in order to maintain that anonymity. Uh, so I think the combination of those two really unique factors in this true crime story, uh, I found to be really compelling. As far as, you know, Israel goes, so he's, what do you think ultimately? So we, we know that his family was in like a religious cult type thing. A couple. <laughs> yeah, a few. <laughs> oh, yikes. But um, as far, you know, as far as that goes, do you think at all that had any sort of influence on him? Do, what, as far as like Israel's nature versus nurture, what do you think ultimately stemmed him being a serial killer? Well, you know, I, I don't think it's versus. I think it's and. Um, and, you know, I asked, I have a few experts on the show because I am by no means an expert in criminology or psychology. So I have people to come on and tell me when I'm wrong. Um, and I, I asked that very same question to the criminal psychologist, Dr. Catherine Ransland, who's on the show. And she said, if it was all nature, uh, you know, he's one of 11 kids, then his siblings would um, exhibit some of these same behaviors. And as far as we know, that's not the case. Uh, so I, I think it's 
or I'm sorry, if it was nature, that would be the case. So I think it's both. I think, you know, this is a guy who was raised in an extremely oppressive um, right wing um, white supremacist off grid extremist uh, religious views family uh, who, you know, dipped their toes into Amish, who dipped their toes into um, neo-Nazism, who lived off the grid, who kind of let their kids do whatever they want. He also ended up being in the military for a significant amount of time. And uh, he was a arsonist as a child and a pyromaniac. So he had a lot of these factors that you hear a lot of other serial killers might possess one of them, like, you know, extremist views growing up, or they were in the army for a significant amount of time and came back and had PSTD of some sort, um, or they were pyromaniacs and tortured animals as kids. But Israel Keys really is like all of those things. Um, right, right. Also very segregated from society. They always lived in the woods. They always only hung around people who went to whatever church his mother was taking them to at the time. And I used church very loosely. Um, so I think it's, he was probably wired that way. I, you know, he's a psychopath and, uh, I have never met an expert who will not say that psychopaths, um, are not born that or are not born that way. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that, along with all these other external factors, nurture factors, is really what made him the monster he became. Do you know offhand what the earliest sign was of Israel as far as being a psychopath? Do we know, like, what the first instant was, or is it just kind of... I mean, it's it's hard to tell because his family... Um, wasn't a traditional family in that sense. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the story he tells is that he you know, got a friend and took him out to the woods and, uh, you know, made the friend watch him kill a cat. Uh, and that's when he realized he was different from others. But, um, you know, he also talked about stealing guns from his neighbors as he, when he was a kid and burying them in a shed on this property. We know he was burning down abandoned buildings when he was 12 and 13. So who knows? Um, right. on record, I, I think probably, setting fires and killing a cat both when he was a teenager. But I imagine he was exhibiting a lot of signs of psychopathy uh, Mm -hmm. well before that. He just unfortunately had a family that wasn't um, super concerned with his mental health. Right. And that's interesting, too. You say that he was burying guns because isn't that kind of like his thing? He would bury kill kits? It's what he's famous for, um, and it definitely was kind of his vehicle for killing people. Is he would, um, you know, he lived in Alaska and Washington State, and so let's say for an example, he was in Washington State in 2004. He might fly out to Wyoming, um, and he would pay for the flight in cash, and you know, leave as little paper trail as humanly possible, and. Uh, he would bury a bunch of guns, Drano, duct tape, condoms, basically any disturbing thing you could buy at Home Depot or Walmart at two in the morning. Um, and he would bury them there. And then two years later, he would fly to a different city, drive, you know, X amount of miles down to this rural town in Wyoming and use the kill kit to kill someone. Um, and that way it was really hard to track him. Uh, cause you know, if someone dies in, a town and cops are looking into it. They're going to look at strange purchases. 
in that area at that time. They're not going back two years to see if someone bought a bunch of crazy shit um, because that just makes no sense. So he was really good at exploiting uh, limitations within local law enforcement and even to an extent the FBI. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Mm-hmm. And he also learned from the different like books and true crime things. Yeah. He, Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? He was a true crime fan before it was cool. <laughs> like, uh, Yikes. <laughs> yeah. So as a child, he said that he read Mindhunter when he was 13 or 14. And in reading that, he realized like, oh, this this book is about people like me. Um, and then he just started consuming as much true crime as he could. He read a lot of books. He watched a lot of documentaries. He became obsessed with a lot of people think it's Ted Bundy. It's actually H.H. H. Holmes he was obsessed with. Um, and then as he got older, he would watch all the shows that we watch. Um, <laughs> and he learned a lot. He was a bit of a Luddite because he was raised peripherally Amish. So he uh, had a cell phone, but he was terrified of it because he didn't know if he could be tracked. And he learned, you know, if I'm going to go out and do bad things, I better leave my cell phone at home or take the battery out. And anytime he abducted someone, the first thing he did was take the battery out of their phone. And he learned how to use jurisdictions against uh, local law enforcement because he watched that on true crime documentaries, how we suck at working with other police departments and working with police departments across state lines. So he was an avid consumer of true crime and used it to get away with uh, his, his multiple crime spree. He wasn't just killing people. He was robbing banks. He was breaking into houses. He was an arsonist. Um, and he learned how to do all that quite well from true crime. Wow. It makes you kind of question the ethics of like talking about everything as much as like we enjoy it. I mean, like we actually have an example of somebody using it for bad, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that's, using that's, it to catch the bad people, somebody to learn how to 
be worse than they already are. It's yeah. something I was fascinated by because I worked on this for three years before I put out the first season and I was really fascinated by the ethics of it all. And it was going to be a huge component of the show, but people did not care for that. So I kind of <laughs> scaled back because um, that's to me, it kind of goes hands in hand, hand in hand with this. Like, is this my story to tell? Um, at what point does it is it OK to talk about some of these things? Because I think even as a true crime consumer, um, sometimes I forget like these are real people mm -hmm. and I did an episode that is really jarring and I haven't been able to listen to it. Um, and it was mostly just to convey that, like, just remember these things we're talking about actually happened and these murders, these grisly, terrifying, sensational murders actually happened. And those were people's lives. And I was really conflicted. Obviously I did the podcast anyway. Um, but I really wanted to explore that like in my, hesitations from step to step throughout the whole process because I don't think there was a day that went by from the day I started this four years ago till uh you know halfway through season one where I was like should I be doing this is it okay for me to do this <laughs> mm -hmm. now let I guess let's kind of bounce off of that um so I'm assuming how, how many hours of tape have you listened to Oh, gosh. Um, so, if you could ballpark it. Yeah, I think there's 33 hours available, and I've probably listened to all of those at least three times. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's dedication. Wow. Yeah, wow. and then the, the FBI case file, I think it's somewhere, it's 2,000 documents, so I think it's about 3,500 pages, and that I've read, oh, God, probably like six or seven times. Oh, my gosh. So you have just, like, jumped into this. Like, you completely submerged yourself in it's his kind of, for the most part. Yeah, it's kind of become my life. Um, and, and I wish I had taken more of a break between season one and two because it just um, – it takes you to some dark places when you're just, like, living in this. Um, <laughs> like, I feel like I spend more time with this serial killer than I do, like, my significant other. And right. That's right. a dark place to be. <laughs> um, so – and then as far as, you know, like, with the podcast itself, so you actually have – some of the recordings on there of Israel talking to the FBI and um, the police, I believe as well. Yeah. So what I find so interesting is the, the way that keys actually is communicating with these people. And it's, I know obviously they're like trying to appease him and just go along with it, but like the, his blase attitude about, you know, talking about these different crimes. It, and it's like you kind of just sit there listening to him and he just sounds, you know, obviously he sounds crazy. But the way he's speaking sounds so normal. It's it's very weird. It's it's what what are your thoughts on that? You know, I think it's really nuanced. And again, um, you know, I've listened to those tapes many times and I've gotten to know him, I think, as well as a stranger could at this point. Um, and. There, a lot of the time, I do feel like he's just talking about these things in the way that we would, you know, read a grocery list. Mm -hmm. There are other times, though, where I feel like, you know, this is a guy who's lived a double life for 14 years. No one he's told no one about these things. Um, and a lot of those moments, I actually get the sense that he's relieved to finally be able to talk about this stuff. And, um, you know, within that relief, sometimes there's pride. Sometimes there's shame. Sometimes there's excitement because I think he's reliving a lot of these experiences in a new way by sharing it with others and having people express interests um, and ask questions and 
care about these things that he's done. Um, And so it's actually really fascinating when you listen to those tapes through that lens, because I think you pick up on a lot more um, and it really gives you a more holistic view of him as well as the agents interrogating him and just that very strange relationship. Mm -hmm. Well, and on top of it, I mean, Keyes had, like you said, a completely different life. He he was being two people for a long time, I, I think is along the lines of something he had said. I find it so interesting when Keyes is actually talking about like his family. He had a daughter. Yeah. And girlfriend? Uh, yeah, he had uh, uh, what, you know, the daughter's mother is referred to as many things. Uh, they were never legally married. Common mm-hmm. law wife, I see a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I just think of her as Tammy. Um, and then gotcha. he had a girlfriend following Tammy. Okay. Now, was it the girlfriend following Tammy that was the one he was with when he got caught? Yes. Well, he wasn't with her. He was actually, he was not physically with her when he got caught, but uh, he was living with her. They had broken up actually about two weeks before he got caught. Yeah. So that's so interesting. And I know part of his whole, I guess, like during his, him being questioned, his whole thing was he wanted to make sure that his girlfriend would get her car back right away because she needed it. Yeah. And his like, you know, concern for his daughter. When we think of psychopaths, we don't think of them caring about anybody else. And I just feel like Israel kind of defies that in a way. What what do you think as far as family life goes? Yeah. So I think to answer that specific question, and I will say the criminal psychologist disagrees with me, um, but the FBI agent that I um, talked to quite frequently about this case agrees with me that I think he genuinely cared and loved his daughter. Um, I think he took on a caretaker role that made him fulfilled uh, in ways that nothing else has except for murdering people, which (laughs) sounds ludicrous when you say it. Right. Um, (laughs) But I think he took a lot of pride in his relationship with his daughter and taking care of her when her mother couldn't and giving her the uh, loving environment that her mother couldn't. Uh, And it is very counterintuitive, but you see it and you hear it in the interviews, even his girlfriend, he really wanted her to get his her car back. And at that point, they're broken up. He's in prison for the rest of his life. Like he really shouldn't have a vested interest in that. Um, right. And he, he's using it as a bargaining chip. But it's like there are so many other things he could have used as bargaining chips that would be advantageous for himself, not getting his girlfriend her car back. Right. So I think he cared in a capacity that we as presumably not psychopaths can't. Um, but I think he did care. It's just a care we can't fully understand because his brain just worked differently than ours. And his family, um, his chosen family are just really wonderful people who mean the world to me and really, um, kind of drove the first season for me. Uh, every episode I did, uh, the foundation was less about keys and more about his family and and what all this did to them. And uh, they're just really strong, incredible people that I am so proud of. And uh, I just root for them uh, constantly. And I check in on them all the time because for them to go through what they went through um, and it it supersedes even just keys and what he did, um, like his actions really reverberated in some pretty terrible ways for them. Uh, I just, um, 
have nothing but love for them. And I am getting a little teary eyed. It could be the glass of wine I'm having, but (laughs) they're just great, great, great people. And I, I could not survive, um, you know, my father or the love of my life being a serial killer, uh, Mm -hmm. let alone some of the other experiences they've had because of that. So just ah, amazing people. One thing about Israel Keys, I feel like nobody really knows who he was. And and I'm sure that has something to do with the FBI, you know, obviously keeping his name quiet. But I just find it interesting. It's 2019 now. It's, you know, it's really surprising to me because I think... He kind of lost it at the end, and that is why he got caught. He lost control. I think had he not, he could have been the most prolific serial killers of our time. Uh, he was so meticulous, so methodical, so smart. He learned from other serial killers' mistakes. Like this, The fact that there aren't movies about this guy is just incredible to me because of who he was in his crimes, but who he was at home, what he put into his crimes, everything that happened in his life that really like led him to being who he is. Um, he's just a case study on serial killers and fascinating and terrifying because he had no, um, no real victimology. He went with whoever he knew he could get away with killing, whether it was a man, a woman, and he was sexually motivated. So, um, he was killing based solely on the basis of raping and torturing someone and he didn't care if it was a man a woman elderly um his only rule was no kids uh like that's terrifying that <laughs> like, yeah, i mean that anybody right right um so yeah I, it's shocking to me that people don't know who he is and i think especially because we haven't and i understand the reasoning behind it had a lot of well-known caught serial killers um in the last probably decade or two, you know, especially compared to like the seventies and eighties when it seemed like they were arresting serial killers on a weekly basis. You know, I can name since like 1999, like Todd Cole, Cole, I want to say Cole Pepper. I don't think that's it. Um, Cole Hupp. Yeah, that sounds and, right. And then this gentleman who just got arrested, who they think he has like 90 victims all over the country. Those are the only two American serial killers I can think of, except for Keys, who've been arrested in the last like 15 years. Mm-hmm. So it, it's shocking to me. Um, and I think that's why people have really responded to this podcast the way they have. I think, A, because we're looking at it really holistically. It's not just like crime, crime, victim, crime, crime. It's like, how did we get here? <laughs> right. Um, and I think right. also because it is just this fascinating story that most people have never heard before. So let's, I guess, kind of go into his MO with Samantha Koenig. Um, you know, obviously she was a younger female and, um, then we know about the older couple. Now, do we have a name? We know we have a name for them. Lorraine and Bill Courier. Ah, wow. And that episode that you had about it was just heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. And at that point, had anybody known what had happened to them? Or and did they know where they were? Had they been found yet or no? They've still never been found. Really? Um, and, and that's the thing with his victims. Samantha Koenig is the only one who's been found. Uh, there was a book recently published that claims his fourth known victim was recovered. I had never seen or heard that. I reached out to my FBI contact. He said he's never seen or heard that. So I'm not going to discount it, but I um, am dubious of that claim. 
Do you want to talk at all about how he, I know he kind of goes into detail a little bit about how he would pick someone. Yeah. Do you so have any of that offhand? Oh yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> it's all like imprinted on my brain. Um, so his very first victim, uh, who we don't know who she is and it's his only surviving victim, um, was when he was, I think, 17, and he abducted her from a river where she was intertubing with friends and uh, raped her in an outhouse who was going to kill her. And she um, made herself human to him, and he lost his nerve and let her go. And he did this, actually, just a few miles from his home. Mm. And after he let her go, he was terrified he was going to get caught. And he that moment really informed his MO and a lot of his behaviors um, because he went after a specific type of person. He did it near his home. He let her get away. And he said after that, you know, he wouldn't never let anyone ever get away again. And he would never take anyone near his home. And he would never go after a specific type of person um, because he knew all three of those things would get him caught. Uh, and he learned that from that experience, but also from Ted Bundy. So he started traveling great distances and he would go to places where people tended to be alone um, in remote areas. So trailheads, lakes, um, cemeteries. And he would just wait sometimes for hours for the right person who he felt like, I can take this person down. There's no one around. I can get them out of eyesight as quickly as possible. Um, and they maybe they have a car so I can drive them out of here as quickly as possible. Uh, so that was his MO for years. Um, and when he was in Washington State, he was operating mostly in the Washington, Oregon, Idaho area because um, he would just, there's so many national parks there and trailheads and a lot of distance. Uh, and then he moved to Alaska and did not want to operate in Alaska because there were too few people. So that's when he really started traveling even greater distances. Um, you know, when he killed the couriers, he flew to Chicago uh, and then rented a car and drove from there all the way to Vermont. Uh, used a kill kit he had buried two years previously. Murdered them um, before he even picked them. He had like scouted out an abandoned farmhouse where he was going to take his victim, whoever it was. He had actually been stalking a man because he said he wanted to kill a man that night. Um, but he just felt the opportunity wasn't right. So he started walking around a neighborhood, found a single family home that didn't look like there were kids or dogs. And he said, um, within seven seconds of him breaking the glass, he was in the bedroom with them tied up. Um, and it should be noted that he sat in these people's garage for three and a half hours waiting for the neighbors to go to sleep and waiting for, you know, it to get dark out and the streetlights to turn off. And he cut the phone line and waited to make sure cops weren't coming because there was an alarm attached. Like he was very strategic about this in a way that is terrifying. Um, My God. Yeah. And that was a little different. And what's hard about him is he, you know, speaks really highly of his MO and how smart he was. Uh, only one of the four victims we know categorically are his actually really falls in line with the way he talks about his MO. Um, her name is Deborah Feldman. The FBI only very recently confirmed that she is in fact a known victim of his. Uh, they have speculated for years, but just announced recently that she is his victim. 
Um, and she flew into Manchester, New Hampshire, drove to Hoboken, I believe, New Jersey, somewhere in the Hoboken area. Uh, it escapes me now. Abducted her, drove her into, we believe, the Berkshires, where he raped and murdered her, and then drove her all the way to upstate New York, where he buried her. And then what I found um, is the next day he robbed a bank, and I found that actually immediately following all of his known kills, he robbed a bank, usually the very next day, sometimes within a few days. And I talked to the FBI about it, and they had also quietly come to the same realization. And so that's one way I've been able to track possible victims is, was there a bank robbery nearby? Is it unsolved still? Um, so, yeah, that's his MO is bearing a kill kit, waiting years, then traveling a really insane route to get there, taking a random stranger that he knows he can get away with and then moving their body to a different state. And then generally robbing a bank the very next day. God, it's almost like a like a sick trophy. Yeah, it's interesting. The FBI believes that um, he was killing people to amp himself up to rob banks. I don't know that I agree with that. Um, and I know the criminal psychologist doesn't agree with that because we think that. the Yeah, that, was, that makes no sense to me. It that was more the other way around. Exactly. Um, that it yeah. was kind of like a come down from killing someone. Yeah. Like he, would amp, he even said, I amped myself up and I needed some, to do something with all the energy. <laughs> so This is going to sound horrible, but it's like his smoking a cigarette. Exactly. Like, it is. Like, oh, good Lord. Let's talk about the last case, the one that actually, you know, we have the body and we know what happened. And that was Samantha Koenig. Yes. That happened up in Alaska? Yeah, so he broke his rule mm-hmm. and it, it got him caught. He um, had decided, you know, it was winter and Anchorage is obviously very cold and snowy in the winter. And they have these drive through coffee stands and he decided hitting one at closing time would be great because he could make a bunch of money and also grab someone without anyone seeing. So he abducted Samantha and um, unbeknownst to him, there were cameras. So he's on camera abducting her. The video is terrifying to watch. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he takes her, and this is one of two very disturbing components to all this. He takes her to his home Um, where his daughter and girlfriend are asleep and uh, takes her into a shed and rapes her, kills her, rapes her again, um, and then shoves her into a cabinet in a shed, goes and takes a shower, wakes his family up because they were flying to New Orleans to go on a cruise. Um, So he did that. Then after the cruise, uh, his girlfriend went on a road trip with some friends. He took his daughter out to his family's house in Texas, where he then robbed a bank and set a house on fire. And we believe that right before he robbed that bank and set the house on fire, that he abducted a gentleman by the name of James Tidwell and raped him, uh, buried him out at a lake there, returned to the lake after the bank robbery to rape him again, um, picked up his daughter, flew home, where he went out to his shed, defrosted Samantha with a blow dryer, cut her up, submerged her in a lake while he was ice fishing, caught two fish, took them home, and cooked them for his family. Um, 
And, you know, I won't go into all the details because we'll be here all night. He um, ended up taking her debit card and using it all over the country, um, which flagged him and ultimately got him caught. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a question with that. Was that so I know um, he that he took her cell phone and texted family members. Was that the first time he had ever done that? Or Um, do we not know? We don't know. He said that he had thought about doing it with the couriers, um, but they that situation kind of got away from him and he got felt like things were really out of control and he didn't want to do anything that was going to jeopardize him getting away, um, which is why he didn't end up robbing banks on that trip and also why he didn't end up trying to get a ransom on that trip. Um, but I. I think that anyone's super methodical when they find something that works, they repeat it. And so I would not be surprised if he had done that previously. Uh, There's another case unconfirmed. I 100% believe he was involved in this girl's disappearance where uh, her, the person who abducted her tried to use her card several times. Um, So that's something that I've been looking for as I've been out looking for victims who could be his, who line up with his travel schedule, who line up with him robbing banks, who line up with him paying thousands of dollars towards his credit cards at the same time. Um, So there's a lot of patterns that have kind of revealed themselves over the years. Uh, So I I do believe that he had tried maybe not to quite that scale. because I think, again, he was losing control. There was a lot going on in his personal life. He had told family members that he was a terrible person and he wasn't understood. He was coming unraveled at the seams. And so I think he was maybe taking old practices and um, sensationalizing them and really screwing things up for himself, which thank God for all of us. Um, but yeah. 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 I mean, honestly, wow. Would you say you have like a murder map going uh, on? Trying I, to plot I multiple murder maps. <laughs> so I, um, I have a map that has all of his travels, and then I have a map. So uh, after he was arrested, they searched his computer and they found forty-four people uh, that Namus matched as missing people who he had searched for on his computer. So I have a map with all those people mm-hmm. uh, where they disappeared from, when they disappeared, um, and then do I have they, a map. Do they correspond with anything? Well, it's really interesting. And we're getting into that in season two because I had listed them and there's, you know, a lot of names that most true crime fans will know. Um, There's a lot that we won't. And I think those are more likely his victims because he said that up until um, the couriers or he said he won't talk anything about anything that happened before the couriers, but around the time of the couriers, one of his cases started getting a lot of news, um, which I believe means he murdered someone on that same trip. And that is the one that got a lot of news because the couriers didn't get a ton. Ultimately, he had said that he never searched for any one of his victims by name because he didn't want to get red flagged. So he would search, you know, like an area and like missing people from the Tampa Bay area or a date, missing people, 714. And those are the patterns that, emerge when you're looking at these 44 people um, is there will be clusters, either like a bunch of people who disappeared on July 4th across many years, 
or a bunch of people who all disappeared within 60 miles of Pittsburgh across two or three years. Um, and then there's a few outliers, which I've gotten into as well. So mm-hmm. the name is 44 ended up while he's probably not even involved in like a third of them. Those really are painting a picture of like what he was looking for. Um, mm-hmm. Because you know, I'm trying to think there's some big ones. Holly Bobo's on there. Um, the cold podcast is about her. Oh, Susan Powell. Yeah, Susan Powell's on there. And we know almost categorically that he was not involved in those cases. Um, so it's using how did he get to those um, and and taking that to really interpret what he was actually looking for. It's a puzzle. It's like a giant logic puzzle. And I'm a big nerd. I love puzzles, which is why I think this has been a really, I hate to use the word fun and exciting, but uh, fun and exciting process for me because it's all these pieces that at first they don't look like they connect, but when you spend more time with them and really recontextualize everything, um, all the puzzle pieces start to connect and you start to see the big picture and it's been mm-hmm. really exhilarating. And I'm hoping, um, you know, this is an indie podcast, uh, so there's not <laughs> a ton of money, but I'm hoping I'm going to be doing some traveling and I'm trying to work together. We know one of his victims uh, was submerged in Lake Crescent in Washington state. So I'm trying to put together a dive team to go out there and see if we can find something and trying to get some cadaver dogs to go out to this lake in Texas where we believe a body is buried. So I'm hoping that all this research will will take us somewhere positive. Um, But in the meantime, I think it's a really fascinating story. And I think it it really humanizes a lot of components to true crime that are sometimes um, ignored. Well, and if you can do something to help solve these cases. I mean, that's amazing. You know, that's that's my, that's my goal. Yeah. I just, I can't imagine having a loved one disappear and having no idea what happened to them. Um, and while it would be horrendous to find out that that's what happened to them, Mm -hmm. just that closure. And that's been the baseline for me. Uh, that's really what got me to start. This was like, maybe we can do some good. I want, I want these families, whoever they are, um, or the families that I think could be victims of keys to, to have closure. Mm-hmm. And the FBI has since, you know, it's a cold case now because he killed himself. So they stopped applying resources to finding out who his victims were. And so, you know, someone has to. Right. So after he was caught, when exactly? Um, March of 2012. And he killed himself in December? Yes. I found it really interesting in one of the clips you played. He says something along the lines of, I'd rather they think that they're on an island somewhere, you know, living happy life or something like that. His thought process is just very interesting as far as him giving details with the crimes and whatnot. Yeah, I don't think that was care. I think that was shame. Um, like like a bad, like yeah. I know I did something bad. Not even that. I don't think he cared that people knew he was a killer. I think he cared that people knew he was raping men and and necrophiling dead bodies. Um, I think that's what he cared about. Uh, obviously, he didn't want his daughter or family to know what he'd done. But at that point, like, mm-hmm. that do you think that's why lost. he didn't want to talk about anything that happened before the courier murders? I think that and I think control. Um mm-hmm. I think those are big things because there are a few moments where you can tell he is ashamed and it's when they start to touch on men and they ask him about, you know, visiting male, male sex workers and Mm 
um, you know, they start like getting into the necrophilia stuff and he gets upset and doesn't want to talk about it anymore. So there are moments where you see the shame. um, And, you know, this is a guy who really prided himself on being a pillar of his community. So I'm sure that there are, you know, components of that too, where, you know, Right. He didn't want people to know what he was doing. And he also said, you know, this is this was for me. This is all for me. I'm, I'm not sharing it with anyone. This is, you know, right. these victims are mine. Well, and isn't that where the name true crime bullshit comes from? Is him saying he doesn't want any of this to be shared? Yeah. Yeah. He says, I don't, you know, I know how this works and I don't want to be on some TV series. Um, I don't want any of that true crime bullshit. And I just thought, oh, well, that's perfect because... <laughs> I also was going to be exploring true crime and how it can be bullshit sometimes. And Mm -hmm. so I just felt like that was the perfect title. Um, It's been a bit of a hindrance because you can't say shit. You know, you can talk about raping a dead body on a podcast, but you can't say shit in its title. Uh, So people can never find it. Uh, Other than that, it was the perfect (laughs) title. It still works. See, and I didn't, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, You know, I just started listening fairly recently And I did not realize I knew that he had said something to the effect of true crime bullshit, but somewhere in my brain, it didn't connect that. That's why you named it that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, geez. So, I mean, is there anything else you want to discuss as far as anything you found or anything surprising to you with um, Israel or his family or victims? Oh, gosh. I mean, um, there's so much <laughs> to talk about. Um, I think, I think the big takeaway for me is if you're a true crime consumer, it can feel really overwhelming. Um, and telling these grisly stories is overwhelming. And when you actually spend time looking at the numbers, because to me, this is as much about true crime as it is about Israel keys, you realize like, you shouldn't live your life in fear of stuff like this. Um, it like the percentages are so small and, um, you know, I think the world is kind of broken already anyway. And I think when we go out and we distrust people and we don't want to talk to people and we avoid people because of all this bullshit, um, it just makes the world a worse place. And so I, I think, my big takeaway is like, yes, be afraid to go hiking by yourself, but no, don't be afraid to like talk to a dude on the street who's like asking for directions. Um, I humanity has been the most important component of the story to me, and I, I hope that's what people take away from it. Mm-hmm. So, what can we expect with season two? <laughs> um, <laughs> I know you're kind of. I'm and in and it. what what's what's going on as far as. Well, True crime bullshit. What's what's in the future? I know you said maybe a dive team. Yeah. So it's funny because, you know, season one, I had three years to work on. And season mm-hmm. two, I took, I think, a month off between seasons. And oh, <laughs> I didn't even really take it off because I was touring for the show. And so I like sat down and was like, oh, I should probably start working on this season two that's supposed to premiere in a week. And so, <laughs> um, like there is no map for season two yet. Like I know we're going to be exploring his travels and the name is 44 and, and what they mean, um, as well as bank robberies and missing indigenous people. Um, is there a roadmap to what that looks like yet? Not really, if I'm being honest, mm-hmm, I'm just kind of mm-hmm. making it up as I go. But fortunately, like 
I know this case very, very well. So, uh, you know, I'm not entirely making it up. I'm just figuring out like, what story are we telling this week? Um, and then, yeah, hopefully we can get this dive team thing happening. No promises. Um, hopefully, hopefully we can get the cadaver dog dog thing happening. No promises, but I am definitely going out into the field and that will be exciting and terrifying. Um, yeah, 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 but Good stuff's coming, it sounds like. Yeah, and then uh, I've gotten lots of questions because originally season two was going to be a whole new story, but people were not done with this. Um, and I realized about halfway through season one that I wasn't either. There was still so much more story to tell. Um, mm -hmm. But season three, which will be premiering in early 2020, uh, will be a whole new case and a whole new story. Um, and right now I'm vetting. Um, I'm in discovery for three different cases Ooh. and we'll see how much info I can get and which one looks nice. like it can be fleshed out into an entire series. Very cool. Any, any thoughts of a book at all? Um, Since you not, are basically a walking, talking encyclopedia now of this case. <laughs> it's weird. I, I don't, I don't like to say I'm an expert, but I think at this point, like I might be an expert in that, which is a strange, strange thing. It's almost uh, like an unintentional expert. Like you went in learning everything and now you came out, like you said, it's like imprinted on you. Yeah. So. Well, and it's like, because he's so unknown, there's not a lot of people um, who are experts on him. So I just like accidentally became one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know about a book. We'll see. People asked for it. There's two books on him currently. Um, I'm not a big fan of either, um, but I don't think that that's enough to compel me to write a book. Um, there's some other conversations. We'll see what happens. I'm not allowed to talk about them, uh, but um, we'll, we'll see. Uh, it's, I think doing this um, has taught me a lot about myself and I um, enjoy being able to kind of dissect this, I've learned that I, I do have an aptitude for kind of like looking at a mess and creating something out of it. And so um, even as we move away from this case, I think it's the one that really taught me that I can do true crime um, and that I'm relatively good at it, I like to think. I'm mm -hmm. sure I've got a bunch of people leaving me comments telling me otherwise. But um, <laughs> Well, I feel like if you can do this case, you can do just about anything because this case is just literally like a shit show, I feel like. There's it's so much behind, yeah. Yeah, behind the scenes. And, you know, I feel like this is like, if you can do this, you can do anything. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, to like Patreon people at a certain level, like I send them a different case file uh, every two weeks. And I have people who are like, like ravenously eating them up being like, you missed this one thing. And I'm like, yeah, I probably missed a lot of things. <laughs> 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 but hey, I mean, obviously this has definitely taken definitely taken off i mean people are very interested because there really hasn't been anything about him it's wild i've been podcasting for three years and you know there's another show i do our americana that's just like my passion project and um i remember it hit like like uh ten thousand downloads in a month and i like lost my mind um and then this happened and i was like oh <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's a whole new beast that i'm still trying to understand like i see myself in like articles and i'm like oh that bitch again uh, i'm <laughs> sick of hearing from him <laughs> so, like it's a very strange place to be <laughs> as yeah. i sit in my closet <laughs> surrounded by clothes <laughs> talking to you <laughs> oh my god that's hilarious uh, so do you want to do you want to just i guess plug your podcasts while yeah. you're 
Yeah, so uh, I am updating my website, but there's like a, a shell of a website at uh, truecrimebullshit.com. And you can see my other shows, which are Our Americana, which takes a look at uh, cultural events in small town America and how they impact community. Um, and so we're talking about political issues, but not politically. Uh, and so it's like friendly for everyone, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or independent. That's a really lovely one. They, there are episodes where you'll laugh, where you'll cry. My favorite episode is about um, an orca that got orphaned from its pod. And because they're super social creatures, it just found a seaside village and made the village its pod. Um, and it actually, this village had previously been really segregated between a local um, Native American tribe and then the you know, white settlers. And they had all this uh, intersectional friction and the whale actually brought them together as a community. Uh, and so that, that's my passion project. It's my first podcast I started. It's in between seasons now. It will eventually be coming back when I can take a break from true crime bullshit. Uh, yeah. and then the Karen and Ellen letters was another like cult hit, which, uh, many years ago, I guess 14 or 15 years ago at this point, I was gifted a stack of correspondence, like handwritten letters from the eighties between a landlord who was like this snarky, gay, older Jew guy and his two tenants who were like young, privileged white girls living on their own for the first time. Um, and it's hilarious and it gets really, really egregious. They're asking for insane things from him. They're writing him letters almost every single day. Um, and it gets to the point where they blow up a Christmas tree farm and you're like, these letters can't be real. Uh, so the podcast, I have actors reading all the letters and then I narrate it telling my 14 year journey of trying to authenticate the letters um, oh and it ends in a very shocking way. Um, shocking even to me because I was still investigating while I was creating the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a mystery, but also really funny. And then uh, playlist, which is a music podcast. Each episode, I pick a different theme like songs that make you cry or your favorite covers or songs that always make you dance. And I pick uh, a rotating panel of different podcasters and we all pick two songs and kind of dissect why we chose them and what they mean to us and share personal stories and inevitably like tease each other. Uh, It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, very cool. And I'm going to make sure to link everything down below so people can find you. So Josh, thank you so much for being on Victimology. Thank you for having me. This has been lovely. I want to extend a huge, huge thank you to Josh Hallmark for being on the show tonight. And I really encourage you all to check out all of his different podcasts. You can find all that information at r-americana.com. And you can see all the different podcasts and um, things that Josh is involved with. And he's on Twitter and I believe Facebook as well. But yeah, definitely check him out. And again, thank you so much, Josh, for being on the podcast. Well, that about does it for this week's episode. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Victimology. Victimology is a self-produced podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Victimology on your favorite podcast platform. Like and follow Victimology on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we do, please consider giving Victimology a five-star review on iTunes.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.